If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. You know, my first encounter with LRT systems uh, was in the mid-80s. I lived in Calgary from 86 to 89, including the winter, uh, there for the Winter Olympics. It was incredible. And I remember being mesmerized at this city that, you know, was in the middle of nowhere and just right into the middle of the Rockies or just at the foot of the Rockies there. And, uh, you know, a completely self-contained, self-sufficient uh, city. And then they got this LRT system, which in the 80s, not many had it. And I remember specifically being on it and riding to a hockey game, an Olympic hockey game, with my girlfriend at the time and saying we were the only ones on the train that were speaking English because there were so many international tourists. It was, uh, it is and was uh, a, a great success. They've added to it since I've been there. On the other hand, you look to places like Ottawa and you go, what a shite show. Uh, you know, mind you, we certainly know the history of, of Ottawa and what has happened, uh, you know, over the course of of the last little while with their their past mayor and such but uh you know it seems that in the 80s we could pull it off yet in in this era we can't what's the difference how does hamilton make sure we don't make the same mistakes and we all know uh in this area this has been a very 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 long uh, journey let's bring in sean sagan creator and uh, editor of rail fans canada a platform dedicated to the exploration and discovery of all uh, of rail public transit across canada and is here now shane thank you for the time hope you're well thank you thank you for having me so shane uh, this is one um, you know uh, at least uh, analogy i can identify with because I've, I've lived in calgary way back when and they were pulling it off back in the 80s and then what we've seen and and just the the screw-ups in in ottawa can just from an uh, 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 an over perspective can you give us an idea why is one working why did one have so much problem well, it, it's really a complicated situation. I mean, you know, I, I live in Ottawa and I'm a big supporter of the O-Train and I want to see the system succeed and, and be well perceived by the public. Uh, but it, it's been a very difficult uh, journey ever since it opened in September 2019. You know, we've had, you know, unfortunately two derailments. Nobody was hurt, thankfully. And, um, you know, other issues, wheel bearings, uh, failing, um, you know, power issues, doors, most of these issues have been fixed since the opening. It's taken a long time to get to that point. But the, the main issue that we currently have right now and that led to a nearly one month shutdown uh, just weeks ago is due to the wheel bearings and the axles on the trains not being able to handle the profile of the track. So lots of sharp turns and, and things like that. And, um, you know, it's disappointing to see this because this was everybody's expectation was this was going to be very transformative for the city. And I think in a sense it has been because you see a lot of transit oriented development popping up around the stations and uh, different connections being made. It definitely looks nicer than seeing buses lined up end to end from one end of downtown to another. Shane, um, I don't want to, I don't Shane, I don't want to have the debate whether LRT is good or bad, because mm-hmm. I'm for it. I think it's a great idea. But let's be honest, this has been a royal screw-up and does nothing to help cities like Hamilton, who are trying to get in it and fighting the same sort of battle. So no, what exactly. can we learn What can we learn from this? Is Was it a bad plan? Was it a bad e- execution? And again, I mean, there's been issues within Ottawa City Council that have been, you know, shoddy to say the least over the past uh, couple of years. I mean, it, it, the wheels are falling off the place. So mm-hmm. 
so with that, with that, I mean, what can we learn from this so Hamilton doesn't make the same mistakes that Ottawa has? Well, you know, the the issue in Ottawa really is that, um, well, there, there's multiple issues. Okay, so for example, the trains are low floor. That was a decision that they made because at one point in the past, very, very early on, it was supposed to run on the streets like a streetcar. Uh, downtown or in the outskirts of the city that quickly got changed to being completely separated but yet the requirement for a low floor train remained um, and the requirements in ottawa were high speed high capacity and uh, unfortunately very sharp turns these trains can't handle it and they're very you know they're, they're alstom citadis trains that is a, a model of train that's used all around the world but this is a customized new version that they made specifically for america uh, for North America. So Ottawa is the first one to use it. Toronto on the Finch West is going to be using the same train model. And apparently it was announced that Quebec City is going to be getting the same thing yet again. Um, and, uh, you know, like like the problem really is why, why didn't they just say, you know what, we're, we're not going to be on the street. Why didn't they use high floor trains? You know, something more proven. Mm -hmm. uh, that would probably have solved a lot of issues. I mean, these trains just are having so much trouble because low floor means the the bogies the wheels the motors are crammed yeah. into such a small space that it, it sounds know, to certain, me it certain sounds issues to me, Shane, had to be uh you know resolved by it, miniaturizing everything and it just can't handle it it sounds to me shane it's not the equipment it's it's just it's not the right for the job and these are people that are making decisions who is driving the bus or train in this case because it, it seems like you know there's a lot of bad decisions being made and you're realizing that afterwards well, see, in Ottawa, it was a P3, so a public-private partnership. And when you look at how those are supposed to work, you would think that the city would have brought on experts uh, to advise them on what they should do, right? But it seems like, you know, we had a public inquiry and a lot of details came to light. And some of those details were we wanted, you know, like we wanted a, a hollow axle instead of a solid axle. And we wanted the train to be like this and we wanted it to do like that. And then in the testimonies, Alston was even saying, you know, no train existed to meet these requirements. Like we have to design something from scratch and very customized mm. to be able to meet these very specific requirements that you're putting on us. So I think, you know, where where does some of the issues come from? I think there, there's a lot of, you know, blame and pointing at yeah. people all around the table. But maybe the city had their hand in the cookie jar a little too much saying, you know, we wanted like this and we wanted like that. And I'm yeah. not talking about colors or seat color here, like very specific technical <laughs> specifications of the mechanics. Yeah, I, I wrote down as you were talking, too many cooks in the kitchen, which is basically what you just said. You know, it's, it's sad, Shane, because it seems this is less about LRT and more about dysfunctional leadership. Yeah, it's it seems like that. I mean, you know, I, I don't think anybody meant wrong with all this, but the end result absolutely, with, you know, yeah. so many things. Uh, this is where we're at right now. I mean, right now we're looking at potentially two to three years for them to redesign because that's what they're saying. If we redesign and and uh, install new uh, wheel assemblies, you know, the axle bearings and all, and the wheels and all that, this will effectively solve the root problem. Everything will be fine after that, but that's still two to three years. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, public perception is destroyed even further. But by that point, it's going to be six, seven years since the thing launched. So it's it's pretty rough for the people in the city. And the public transit reputation has been pretty destroyed. Shane, you, know, you have a lot of people creator. that bought cars, and that's pretty much how they're going right now. So clearly, that's the wrong direction you want people taking. Yeah. But 
Yeah. Unfortunately, well, that's, hopefully that's you'll where get people it, are left to. Hopefully you'll get it sorted out. Shane Sagan with his creator, editor of Rail Fans Canada, a platform dedicated to the exploration and discovery of rail uh, public transit across Canada. Here's hoping Hamilton can learn something from all of this experience. Shane, thank you for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. Well, you know me. I'm a bit of a space nut. And whenever things get a little too wacky down here, gets a little too intense, a little too frustrating, it's cool to look up into the stars and see what's going on up there. And uh, many have said we are in a space race right now, and it has already begun. Uh, what will it look like in the future? Today, India became the first country to land a, a spacecraft near the moon's south pole after their, probe made, after their probe made a historic voyage to uncharted territory that scientists believe could hold vital reserves of various things and we'll find out uh, more about all of that from ram jaku professor researching in international space law mcgill university and with us now ram thank you for the time i hope you're doing well thank you very much for asking i'm doing very well so ram what is your first impression now india into this uh, game oh i'm uh, very much excited as a as a person interested in space and as a as an ordinary person i, I think this is a very historic moment for humanity, I will say, and especially for India. Uh, the more the merrier here, the more hands on deck, the better, the more we learn. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. Good ideas can come, good developments can come from anywhere. So when the future of humanity is, is, is involved, is at stake, I think we should be encouraging um, all countries, people, to do something good for the humanity. So I think India has started or has been doing, and I see it's a making good progress for the betterment of the humanity. Where does the this leave other countries who are also uh, in the space race? The space race makes it sound like a competition, and, and as you made reference to, it would be nice if it was more a, a cooperation. But what does this say to other chi- other countries, whether it's United States, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, who all have programs of their own? Well, I think it all depends on the individuals involved, the leaders and the scientists. What is their perception? Some may... Uh, see is as as in inspiration. For example, some countries may aspire to achieve what India has done, particularly countries from global south and other countries like Canada or, or some of the European countries. The others may perceive as a challenge. Um, so it, it remains to be seen. To me, and I hope really it should lead to cooperation uh, for two reasons. First thing is stakes are very high. If we have conflicts in space, I can tell you that nobody is going to be winner. The conflict in space will not be confined to space, but on Earth. And cooperation is necessary to ensure the future of humanity, particularly with respect to resources, which are depleting very fast on on planet Earth. So I think it should be seen or perceived and and considered to be an occasion to reflect and determine the future of humanity, looking for resources more in a cooperative manner. Uh, India, the first country to land a spacecraft near the moon's South Pole. What's the significance of the South Pole? Why is this important, uh, the location where they are? I I must say, I'm not a scientist, but whatever I heard, it is important because there is a strong possibility there is a, a fairly large reserve of ice. That means water. 
water is a source for you know for people to sustain life you know for it's important for a human to live and more importantly it can provide hydrogen and oxygen for missions on the moon and beyond the moon so that is why this is this area is considered to be very important so it is an area that could be perhaps inhabited not by well, by us here not by not by uh, any uh, extraterrestrial or anything but it's uh, you you could could you put a uh, does this help when we we talk about landing on the moon on the way to mars space stations this sort of thing yeah there's a strong possibility but it all will depend what kind of ice is there where it is available uh, how it can be extracted how it can be used uh, but person like me uh, believe there's a strong possibility for for humans to go and settle in that part of of the moon uh is this about harvesting the moon in the future uh there's things up there that are valuable to people back here on earth i think that is a strong uh, incentive for different countries and companies to go there uh, the race in 70s for example was mainly more in the terms of prestige um geopolitics was the major factor at that time geopolitics by the way it is still prevalent nowadays but i currently it's more with the respect to the the exploitation of natural resources on the moon uh, which are known with it's known that they are plentiful uh, for resources which will be of indispensable value for humanity on 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 earth What about laying claim to certain parts of the moon? Many say this is like the exploration of North America centuries ago and in in capturing it for various uh, entities and such. Is it similar in that way? Um uh, it should not be. It could be similar. The reason I believe is that humans um will be uh doing the same thing which they have done on earth. Um that's a sad thing, but I think um people should be not only the government alone i think the people like you and me and people who your listeners should be concerned about the the con- the consequences of conflict in space so i think the rules and regulations and policies should be set in place before exploitation begins so it's important that all the efforts are more or less on um are 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 made on the basis of cooperation than than conflict and that is a possible efforts have been made we have a the 1967 outer space treaty and we had a 1979 moon agreement those uh, treaties are in place so i think countries should and companies should comply with those those international agreements So is it easier for us to get along in space? Uh it's a clean slate sort of. I mean, if we many are asking if we can't get along on earth, how do we get along in space? But the International Space Station is certainly proof of that. Yeah, that's right, but I I I think there there's no difference between cooperation in space and cooperation on earth or conflict in space and conflict on earth. They are tied to if there's a cooperation or not there will be cooperation in space uh, largely uh, you know of course there will be um, some some you know post, some areas which there is no cooperation but i think if there is a conflict in in earth there will be conflict in space or vice versa so i don't really see difference that you can cooperate in space but not on earth or you know the other way around Uh what about from a military aspect? And we were talking about harvesting the moon before. Are people looking at it from a military point of view? 
One, there's an international treaty I mentioned to you earlier, 1967 treaty, mm-hmm. to which you know 120 countries are party to, including United States, Canada, and you know, Russia and China, that prohibits the exploitation of resources uh, in in number of ways under certain conditions. But more importantly, to directly to answer your question, that prohibits all military activities on the moon. So Ram Jakku with us. Says that, Sorry, go- you know, military presence can be there. Ram Jakku with us, Professor of Research in International Space Law. India has just landed a spacecraft near the moon's south pole. More getting involved. Uh, and Ram talking about us all getting along. McGill University is where he's from. Ram, thank you so much for the time and insight. Fascinating issue. Be well. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on, this, on your show. You're doing a very good job. Ryan Amato, Chief of Staff for the Minister of Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, has resigned after being in the spotlight as part of the investigation into the provincial government's Greenbelt land swap controversy. Uh, we know what this is all about. Uh, developers, given the cue, given the, um, the nod that uh, Greenbelt lands uh, were going to be opened up, and it looks like somebody had their hand in the cookie jar. How far up does this go? Chief of Staff first to uh, to resign. And now we're hearing today that the RCMP is looking into whether an investigation uh, is uh, warranted here. Let's bring in Alan Hale, Ontario legislative reporter, Queen's Park Today and Here Now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thanks for having me. Seems to be a bit of a building story, Alan. <laughs> Well, it's been a bit of a building story for months and months and months, and it's uh, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But I think today was definitely a significant milestone. So how can a chief of staff or a minister step down or resign or take the heat, fall on the sword, whatever whatever uh, you want to use for an analogy, and not the, the actual minister himself? Why, why has he not stepped down? What are you hearing? Well, I, be- I think what it really comes down to here is that um, the government does not really think that what has happened with the Green Belt is all that bad. Really, only the- after the Auditor General's report came out and we heard about how Mr. Amato, who you, re- who you referenced, uh, had uh, been given uh, envelopes at a building industry party and how he had taken the uh, requests inside them for removing property from being uh, from environmental protection in the green belt. And he bent bent over backwards to make that happen. Um, Basically the government has just said, Oh, that was just a rushed process. It could have been done better, but really it's um, the actual decision wasn't bad and we're going to stick by it. And we're going to push ahead with uh, building housing on that land because Ontario really needs housing. So to have Clark step down as people have been demanding, uh, including at uh, the um, Association of Municipalities uh, uh, conference, which was this week, uh, which I thought was quite something, uh, like the, to have him step down would be to admit that something untoward has happened here, and that is not something right. the government has actually admitted to. The only thing they've right. admitted to so far is that this was a rushed and flawed process that could have been done better, but otherwise nothing seriously bad happened here. So uh, what's, is there a relationship between the old Pickering Airport lands that have been on hold for 100 years and the Greenbelt? Do, do these two intersect in any way? 
I am not sure, unfortunately. What I've heard is the Pickering lands is mostly um, is mostly agricultural, with uh, yeah. land uh, developed land around the um, around the sides of it, which is a point that the pro- the premier has made a few times. Um, most of the criticism about the Pickering lands is about the fact that it is agricultural. Right. Uh, and uh, we got a uh, some here we heard a bit about that at the uh, conference I was talking about. Um, but yeah, honestly, uh, we we know the Pickering Council is not in favor of this, but the government uh, has always has pointed out that the Pickering mayor is in favor of building on the green belt. Uh, so it's sort of <laughs> you have a, a little bit of a uh, of a, a divide between some pro-development mayors and some um, and some I don't want to call them anti-development councils, but some more skeptical councils. Yeah, it's and you know I there, think there you, you can go. See that with the announcement this week about giving more mayors strong mayor powers without the uh, need to, of the support of their councils, which is something Ford uh, announced like two days ago. So uh, what is happening now? We understand that uh, RCMP is going to look into this. Uh, OPP have have moved it over to them to avoid any sort of uh, perception of conflict of interest. So now they are examining to see whether an investigation is needed. What's happening here? Okay, so um, it's a bit of an interesting uh, time we've been having this morning. Uh, we got a uh, confirmation the us to the media we got a confirmation from the RCMP that a investigation is in its infancy but they sort of backtracked that really quickly and said oh it's uh we're just doing an assessment and that they're going to determine they're going to look at the evidence and they're going to determine right. whether a actual investigation is warranted and that's that's pretty standard for um police mm-hmm. investigations they usually do take a look and see if there is anything if there's any fire to the smoke and you know if they find anything then you can sort of build on that and get a criminal investigation going and whether that goes anywhere or not is depend com- depends entirely on the evidence but uh so but the fact that i what i found really interesting is that the opp decided that it was not in a position to do this investigation uh because they were worried about uh, an, a perceived conflict of interest and which they haven't explained what that possible conflict of interest is so they've handed it over to the rcmp to sort of you know keep this at arm's length um so i think that is quite interesting but it's bad to have the like public confirmation that the uh that you know there's been an investigation and the aopp apparently thought something had happened seriously enough that they didn't want to have to be the ones to investigate it that's never a good that's never good news for the government uh, isn't it good news, though, if there is uh, the chance of a perception of bias that you put it on to somebody else? You know, it's interesting when when the OPP, if the OPP was to do it, people would say, well, there might be a conflict of interest there. And now when the RCMP are doing it while well, they're hiding something and like so, like, I don't know, I, I just think it putting it to a neutral, putting it to a neutral uh, police service doesn't admit guilt, does it? It's just isn't it a perception of bias? No. Are, are you more skeptical I think you're, than that? I think you're right. I mean, the the there's really nothing to say that, like, in any of this, that they have found something. There's like we can't really draw that conclusion. You know, it's all speculation at this point. All right, but, Alan Hill. With I his, mean, uh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Finish up. Finish up. <laughs> go oh, ahead. Sorry. 
Go ahead, finish up. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but yes, uh, but it is a it is interesting that uh, you know the OPP didn't think they could have this because we know Doug Ford is so pro police and uh, he has like sons in laws who are police officers. I think and, there's your an- there's your uh, answer right like there. There's your an- there's your answer right and, there, Alan. Alan yeah. Hill with his Ontario legislative yeah. reporter for Queens Park today uh, in the great green belt debate. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You might remember a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about the situation in Russia and the Wagner Group, which um, uh, a group of uh, mercenaries who uh, were helping out the Russian military and such. And then there was conflict between the two of some sort. And at one point, they were marching towards Moscow. It looked like there was some sort of coup about to happen. And then in the middle of the weekend, that kind of stopped, and they turned around and went in the other direction. And I believe the chief flew to Belarus. I may be wrong there. And 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 now we're hearing has died in a plane crash. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, uh, University of Toronto, and with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So, Jack, many people I talked to, and maybe you are included in this group, uh, said that he may disappear. Does any of this surprise you? Uh, what are your thoughts on what has transpired here? The only thing that surprises me is how long it took. Uh, I I don't think we should uh, shed any tears over Mr. Prigozhin. He was a thoroughly nasty character. But uh, I've expected for some time that Mr. Putin would find some way to get rid of him. I mean, as long as he was alive, he was uh, a a thorn in Putin's side and a potential rallying point for the disaffected, even uh, even in uh, quasi-exile in Belarus. So uh, what do we know about this crash? What happened? Who else was on the plane? We don't know much about it at all. But we know that there were uh, seven passengers and three crew. It was a small plane, a private plane, one of two Wagner Group planes that were flying out of the uh, the main airport in, uh, in Moscow. Uh, the uh, Russian state media have released a video that purports to show the plane crashing, its uh, its authenticity has, I suppose, yet to be determined, but uh, that's about all we know. And uh, the Russian authorities have promised an investigation, but uh, I, I don't think we can take that at uh, face value. Uh, so, are there is there any evidence at this point of sabotage or anything leading to why the plane actually went down? We d- we just don't know. We don't know what. Uh, what uh, exactly what happened? Although I think I think just uh, just in terms of the balance of probabilities, the likeliest thing is that it was sabotage. Uh, Mr. Putin has a very strong had a very strong motive to get rid of Mr. Prigozhin, and he certainly has uh, his tentacles uh, spread out in such a way that it would be possible for him to do so. Uh, private planes, so assuming these were all uh, friends or at least acquaintances in some way, business associates, what have you? Yes. So um, I guess no love lost for the others on board either then? Uh, no, no. I mean, the, uh, the Wagner group is, uh, is, is uh, basically a group of thugs. There's no, uh, no two ways about it. Uh, I think what uh, will be interesting will be uh, how... Uh, 
how Putin tries to allocate blame. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he tried to blame this on Ukraine, although in fact, uh, Prigozhin would have been much more used to the Ukrainians alive than dead as uh, as an irritant to Putin and as a potential rallying point for uh, for those who are increasingly unhappy with uh, with the conduct of the Ukraine war. Well, so there's Putin's reaction. What about Russian reaction? Uh, is there any word yet on how this is being sold to them? Uh, you said Ukraine uh, probably will be blamed uh, for this. What then happens to what was left of the army that he once fronted? Uh, I think the uh, the leadership of the uh, the Wagner group, they, they, they at least those who are closely tied in to Prigozhin, should uh, hire food tasters as soon as they reasonably can and stay away from uh, from from uh, airborne travel. Uh, the uh, the grunts who uh, who form the bulk of it, uh, they're probably safe. What sort of message does this send? Is that what the idea behind this was for Putin, or did he just want him gone because he was a threat? Oh, I think he wanted him gone because he was a threat, and also uh, to uh, to discourage others who uh, who might be tempted to break ranks with him. Uh, Mr. Putin has a long history of dealing in very harsh ways with those who uh, fall out with him and with his domestic critics. And Prigozhin alive uh, was a threat. The How... uh, the coup, the the attempted coup of some weeks back, is uh, is the the biggest uh, break in uh, in the heretofore solid front of uh, Russian solidarity that we've seen. And uh, Putin would not have forgotten. He may have uh, he may have been all uh, forgive and forget when he was cobbling together this uh, this deal with. Uh, with uh, with with Prigozhin abetted by the Belarusians, but uh, I don't think uh, I don't think anyone who's not terribly naive would take that very seriously. How will how will the West view this? Does this have any impact on uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh not a lot. I mean, it 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 merely confirms what we already know that Putin is a nasty customer, that he has a nasty way with his critics. And that uh, those who cross him had best be very careful. Uh, I so I it 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 may uh, it may make things a little harder for anyone who's still trying at this very late date to uh, make excuses for him. But uh, I'm not sure there are very many of those left. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, uh, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. The federal government's liberal cabinet retreat wraps up in pre, uh, PEI today. And uh, as you can tell, housing pretty much the top of the priority, top of the agenda, rather, uh, over the course of the last few days. How did it all go? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, here now. Tim, how are you? Hope you're well. I am good, Scott. Just got back from Newfoundland, actually, so in a, a good frame of mind. So, you know what? I saw a picture that you posted on social media of your mother's garden. It was absolutely beautiful. She, you know what, has managed to figure out our unique maritime climate and always produces a great garden. So it's always a pleasure to go and 
and sit in it and take it all in, particularly when it's the sun shines, because that doesn't happen as often. It was it was absolutely beautiful, but I swear I saw Alan Doyle peering through a hedge. I have to look <laughs> at it closer. You know, uh, I don't know. You know what? I think he was actually in Toronto that day. But next time, Scott, I'll see if I can get him running around in a leprechaun dungeon. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, PEI, the retreat wraps up. Your thoughts? Uh, man, I'm, I'm not sure if we talked about this a couple of months ago uh, that we would have all said housing was going to be the major uh, topic on the agenda. And indeed it was, and of course the criticism now coming out of PEI, the the, the setup, as you know, on Sunday, Monday for the cabinet retreat was, this is going to be the focus of the retreat. They're, uh, you know, they're all consumed with it. Prime Minister certainly said those things and mouthed those words, but the criticism, which is probably fair enough, is they're leaving PEI with no plan or no announcements. That I find a bit strange. Look, you should reflect on policy. You should think about what you're going to do. But it is politics, too. It does involve some marketing. They've given their critics an opportunity here by not announcing something coming out of the cabinet retreat. Now, they say they're going to have something to say in the fall, and, and, and that's fine. But uh, I, I think they're, you know, they're still in a pattern of creating more trouble for themselves then they're solving right now. Uh, many are questioning the total change of tone. I mean, uh, it wasn't that long ago this wasn't an issue for him, and, and now all of a sudden it is. Maybe is that the reason why there really is no plan? Because there's really been no thought put into it other than the past couple of days. Yeah, that's part of it. But, I mean, I was, again, when I was in Newfoundland yesterday, I was, uh, was at an event, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a builder. And, you know, he's saying they're having conversations with different levels of government about what they can do. And one of the things we ended up talking about was, because there's going to have to be something like this, incentives for builders. Well, why couldn't you telegraph something like that? There, You know, we have tax credit and tax breaks and incentive programs for others. There are some things you could at least voice, I think, and then add to them. Maybe you're right. They haven't given it that much thinking. Maybe they don't know where they need to fit, uh, given um, that their role has changed over the years. But I guess the clearest sign we got on direction uh, or a pathway from the prime minister was, I think it was Monday, uh, he said, you know, this is going to be uh, similar to health care. So uh, I don't know. Are we going now to have a first minister's meeting on housing? That would not surprise me as, you know, something that gets announced before Labor Day and uh, hmm. see where we go from there. Uh, the headline on CTV News on the website, C- uh, Trudeau wraps, ret- uh, wraps retreat with message to millennials, no new housing plans, which you just echoed. Is he now starting to refocus on the millennials? Is that why the interest in housing? We well, get pounded there. I mean, our abacus poll, I was talking to your your, your other Scots. So many Scots on CH. I know. You're my, first, you're my first true Scott. I want you to know that. Uh, <laughs> but I told Radley what uh, what we've seen on our abacus data, which is real concern for them, is that uh, there's a big gap now between the liberals and the conservatives, with conservatives, I think, having a double-digit lead. You'll remember, Scott, in 2015, the liberals basically abandoned the ND, or the millennials, excuse me, abandoned the NDP, jumped on board with the liberals and propelled them to victory. 
Um, they're not with the prime minister right now. He needs them back if he's going to win because he's vulnerable among men over the age of uh, 50. Uh, he's, you know, he has vulnerability. He's not as dominant as he once was with female voters, but he's still doing better there than Pollyette. Millennials have won him elections. If he can't close that gap, he will not win. How will the, this is totally a uh, uh, different direction, how will the NDP liberal agreement fly during an election campaign? What happens then? Well, you, a breakup is inevitable, right? I mean, yeah. Jagmeet Singh, for his own purposes, can't go into an election with an agreement for the future there. I don't think. I mean, he's got to stake a proposition that, uh, the value proposition to the public that, look, I, I'm an important player here. So if you elect more of my MP, more MPs for me, I can be an even bigger player. So I can navigate the prime minister's foibles and I can keep the conservatives away. So, I mean, their their agreement does have an end date. I can't imagine that they foreshadow a future agreement because that will invite all sorts of different political challenges uh, prior to an election campaign. Um, so, yeah, I, I think a breakup comes. The question is, when does the breakup come, uh, on what issue, and at what cost to whom? Or if the breakup doesn't come and it ends up being the prime minister who calls the election, doesn't that neutralize Jagmeet Singh and the NDP? Well, I think uh, it, it could, but I, I think a break, you know, if an election were called, that would be a sign of the breakup anyway. And uh, and the NDP would act uh, would act accordingly. Act accordingly. Uh, what about uh, rumors, rumblings we're hearing of uh, unhappiness within the the cabinet itself? People aren't happy with the direction that's going. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, look again, having been out east, uh, where you know, as I've said to you a couple of times in the last month, the Liberals have dominated, and they're not dominating now. I, I know a lot of liberals there including some in caucus well they've not said it to me they've said it through surrogates um are not happy uh, at the moment less so with the prime minister uh, as leader but upset with, the, with his decision-making process so that all uh, sprays itself out in, in the wash and you know he's uh, still got some uh, some stains on him uh, from people in his own caucus uh that, that said um, despite his current numbers, it's hard to see, and I think liberals in their heart of hearts get this right now, today. Maybe it's different in six months, but he's still he's still their their best asset, and it would remain, you know, it, it would be foolish a bit to, to underestimate him. But people are grumbly. It's eight years. Some people have haven't been promoted. Some people are worrying they're not going to get reelected. They don't get reelected. They don't get their pensions. They may not get another job. So there's very, you know, very real personal dimensions to all of this, thus the, the carping and the moaning. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, the latest coming out of PEI and the big retreat. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Hey, talk to you later. Bye. Uh, the latest from Tasha Kiridin, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, and uh, columnist for your In Your National Post. Liberal inaction is allowing the Chinese Communist Party to colonize Canada. To talk more about all of this, Tasha is here. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Oh, yes, I'm very well. Thank you. Tasha, is this resonating with Canadians? Because, you know, we've seen the the call for a public inquiry go from the front burner to, I don't know, the crock pot now. It just doesn't seem to be an issue for Canadians. Yet, you know, we keep getting hammered with all of the evidence. Is this resonating? Well, yes and no. It's not resonating the way I think it would if things, if the economy wasn't so bad. Uh, people are really concerned about bread and butter issues. They're concerned about housing. They're concerned about uh, just, you know, inflation still and, and cost of goods like food. So it's not top of mind. And I think that's partly why you're seeing a lack of action on it, because it's not the biggest issue. And I don't think it's going to be a ballot box issue. And the government kind of knows that. How is China colonizing Canada? Well, uh, where to start? Um, We've known about this problem for about uh, almost 40 years now, and um, you're seeing it in a variety of ways, and I talk about some of them. Um, There's the economic piece, um, the fact that they are, uh, their state-owned companies have sought to buy out so many industries in Canada, whether it is a smaller thing, not that small, but if you live in the the East Coast, but like the lobster fishery, um, lithium mines, we actually pushed back against three of them this year. The government said, no, you cannot buy three lithium mines. Um, then there's the issue of uh, house prices. House prices are through the roof, literally. Um, and there's been evidence. There was a commission down in British Columbia which showed that the laundering of foreign money, specifically Chinese money, of uh, criminal enterprises through the housing market was one of the reasons prices were inflated there, and also the same thing happened in Ontario. Um, The drug crisis, uh, you look at what's Mm. happening with opioids and fentanyl, the biggest source of fentanyl in the world for Canada is China. Um, There are so many different things, and the problem is, and it's not to say, you know, it's not the people of China, it is the government of China, it is the... Communist Party of China, that their, their state capitalism, if you will, is a very different model. We're not on an even playing field, and their objectives are very different than, than our companies and our governments. So we are at a serious disadvantage, and they're seeking to influence the decision-making in Canada to favor their country. They're not colonizing us in the sense of coming here and taking over, you know, uh, like, you know, bringing, bringing in, uh, you know, like when you think of colonization, taking over the entire country yeah. at one shot. No, it's, it's a subtle control of the levers of power and mechanisms to get what they want out of Canada and not what we want on all these areas. Anybody that has followed this in, in, in any light at all can obviously see the need for a public inquiry, unless, of course, you're somehow benefiting from this. Uh, the fact that this has been just punted down the field time after time after time, does this, many are questioning whether, whether it's the Laurentian uh, elite or other politicians have so much vested in this that it's less about uh, 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 interference from the Chinese Communist Party and more about how it will expose these other politicians that are so woven into it. Yeah, well, there's been a lot written about what's called elite capture, and this can be uh, flagrant. It can be literally, you know, offering people incentives, whether it's financial, hiring them in certain companies or other places. Um, But it can also be simply very subtle in the sense of just basically getting them to see things from China's perspective. We went through that with John McCallum, our former ambassador to China. Uh, He started singing the praises of Huawei and Meng Wanzhou and, you know, when she was arrested and this kind of bizarre behavior. And you think, well, why? Why would you act against the interests of your own country. 
Um, it is a way of capturing people through flattery, through treating them well, and sometimes also, unfortunately, through compromising them. And, uh, you know, this is, the, the problem is that for many, many decades, we had hoped and legitimately felt that yep. by trading with China, we'd open up their you know, democratic instincts and you'd get the things to change and the government seemed to be more open to capitalism. And th- this did not happen. It was, never di- it was never going to happen. But in the West, so many people and many people, well-meaning people, even within the elite, felt that they could contribute to that effort. Uh, we know now it did not work. Um, but that also people now have interests to protect And so it makes a situation where, you know, it's very hard to go back on 20, 30 years of of the things you were doing that benefited you to suddenly say, well, wait a minute, we, we, you know, we can't, we can't deal with China the same way anymore. It wasn't that long ago that China was seen as the golden goose. Everybody wanted a piece of it. Uh, But what about the public inquiry? Where is this going to go, do you think? I mean, the conservatives are saying if elected, they'll make sure one is called. Uh, Where is this going between now and then? Well, it's going nowhere fast because no one seems to want to run it. <laughs> this is a problem. This is a big problem, and I don't blame people. But isn't that up to the government, Tasha? Like, honestly, I'm, I'm tired of yeah. the government pushing it on to the opposition to do the work for them. Yeah, it's not. It's. I think the, the government has said they've, they've approached people. I, I believe this. They've approached people and they've said no, because it would be very hard to find someone willing to take it on. There have been approaches suggested to the government. Um, that uh, they haven't necessarily followed through, i.e. don't just pick one person, pick a number of people, get each of the opposition parties to suggest one person so that you can agree uh, from, you know, to, to like a, a panel or whatever. I mean, there's ways of doing this. Um, I think the government doesn't want to do it. I think that they are dragging their feet because it's not in their interest. And they know that the primary uh, target of the inquiry will be them because they've been in power since 2015. Um, it's not to say that other parties won't be affected by what's found especially around elections and, um, you know, our, our voting system. But at the same time, they're the ones who will wear it because they're in power and they don't want to. So they're kicking it down the road and kicking it and kicking it. But at a certain point, you know, they have to do it. And If not, they should get out of the way and get in a government that will. And it's not just about uh, election interference. It's about what the prime minister knew and when, uh, obviously. Tasha Kierden with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, and in the latest in the National Post, Liberal Inaction Permitting China to Colonize Canada. Uh, Tasha, great piece. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking about the green belt issues and such, and you know I've come to the conclusion, uh, and we've got to have keep having the discussions about the green belt because the housing situation isn't going to get any better. This is going to be need to be talked about for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years like it wasn't for the last uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But I think what, what we're finally figuring out here is, is that the same groups or people's extremists, and I mean, I want to protect the green belt. I think most Ontarians do, but the same extremists who are screaming uh, blue murder about the green belt are the same extremists who have not allowed development on the alternatives to the green belt either. And I think that's finally being exposed in this discussion that, okay, there's no sense to use the green belt because there's these 20 to 40 years of land that hasn't been used yet. Well, why has that not been developed for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And why are we in a housing shortage then? And I think it's this sort of extremism which is now sucking and blowing is finally making us realize that we have to find a solution to the problem instead of playing the politics over a piece of land which seems
seems to be more important than people living in tents in every town across the country. Um, hopefully, we'll get refocused. Uh, on that note, Ontario's Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister says he's looking into potential tax changes to spur the creation of rental units. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thanks, Scott. Are anti-developers just anti-developers, Ian? Because it seems that the same groups that are protesting, as I mentioned earlier, the Green Belt, are the same ones that stalled the development on the so-called White Belts, where that 20 to 40 years of land has been sitting for the last decade or two. I've come to a very similar conclusion. I just want to highlight to you and to your listeners a very, very important article that was written in the New York Times, a very liberal newspaper, everybody. And it was about six months ago, and it was a very long investigative report in the city of Los Angeles about affordable housing. And the journalists did an excellent job, talked to everybody. They talked to unions, they talked to the homeless people, advocates, and they talked to everybody, including the city planners. And where I'm going, why I want to talk about this story, because it's absolutely applicable to us, was that they they went through all the rules and all the regulations, and they found that there were all kinds of rules and regulations that drove up the cost of affordable housing and made the allegedly affordable housing more expensive than the identical square foot uh, uh, condos and apartments that were not designated affordable. Because they, hmm. what they would do is they would regulate the very highest, the gold standard. Instead of putting in, you know, allowing the developer and building them to put in basic taps in the bathroom, they had to put in mm. the absolute state of the art taps and state of the art doors, you know, that were, you know, higher than the, what you would put in the luxury home. And so what they found was that a lot of this, you know, the road to hell is paved with the very, very best of intentions. And so mm. my sense is that, and I've had this debate in Ottawa, is, is that there is so much opposition to any expansion. You're quite right. Not just Greenbelt, but any expansion on the on the on the um, edges of the city called the suburbs. And then on top of that, we re- overregulate the the affordable housing. And so what happens is we put all of these barriers in front of affordable housing. And guess what? People respond, companies respond to incentives. Incentives matter. And so the government is trying to come up with incentives. I'm not trying to say that these potential tax changes are going to solve the problem. I don't believe it. I think it's just one uh, small part of the many things that we have to do. The governments are going to have to do federally, provincial, municipally, if we want to have more housing built. All right, Ontario's Municipal Affairs Housing Minister looking at potential tax changes to spur creation of rental units. Your thoughts on that? You said one spoke in the wheel, basically. That's exactly right. I mean, we know this is where I get so frustrated with my progressive friends. And believe me, I'm in the university, so I know lots and lots and lots of progressive people, okay? That's just the nature of the university. And and it's so frustrating, you know, because, you know, they say, you know, they'll say, okay, we got to have a carbon tax. Okay, I understand the logic, you know, it because incentives matter. They'll tell you, and they do, you know, and let, let's incentivize people to stop buying gasoline cars and switch to electric. And then then they'll turn around and support all kinds of taxes on, on something that they want to happen, such as affordable mm. housing. Well, the taxes are disincentives. So what the government is doing here is they're mandating essentially some tax reductions for the developers that are going to incentivize the building of more affordable housing. Well, that's one step in the in the quiver, you know. That's that's going to help. It's not going to 
uh, hurt the the cause of affordable housing. But I think some people have so demonized the developers. I certainly have in Ottawa, you know, and I listen to my progressive friends talk about developers. I mean, you would think they're the mafia. You would think that they're yeah. Putin <laughs> incarnate. I mean, really, they, they, the language that they use to describe developers is really astonishing. And, you know, they're just human beings like everybody else. Yes, they want to make money. I get that. But, you know, they... they so, but so does everybody... But so does it, but so does everybody else when they want to sell their house. Yes, of course. And so we've got to think differently. And I won't use that cliche, think outside the box. We've got to re-examine our policies where we put all kinds of barriers and disincentives to the building of houses. One more quick point, Scott, before we run out of time. I was in very intrigued at the time by President Obama when he appointed a car czar to address the bankruptcy of General Motors and Chrysler. And he was asked, why are you doing that? He said, I need somebody who will have absolute authority to cut through the myriad of red tape and regulations that block all kinds of change. Maybe we need a czar at the a provincial level in Ontario that can cut through and overturn all kinds of these regulations I'm discussing that the New York Times found in Los Angeles and just overturn them. And a, a, not a car czar, let's call it an affordable housing czar that can go in and do what the government is trying to do piecemeal, you know, re reduce a tax here, change a tax there, and have an overarching czar for affordable housing that can go into every municipality and say, I've just canceled that, that regulation or that tax because it is harming the construction of affordable housing and it worked the cars are for the for when they restructured general motors and 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 chrysler in record time and they produced two profitable companies at the end of the of the process maybe we need something like that dr ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carleton university on uh on ontario canadian housing and tax changes that could help dr ian lee as always thanks for the time be well my pleasure, Scott. Thank you very much. All right. Do we need to reconsider what we once considered the golden goose? Uh, Todd Hirsch is with us. Uh, he is an author and public speaker, director of the Energy Transition Center, former chief ec uh, economist at of ATB Financial, and has an, uh, an article in the Globe and Mail from a couple of days ago. Letting go of China's money, the price Canada must uh, pay for its principles. And Todd Hirsch is with us now. Todd, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Nice to be here. So I remember it wasn't that long ago, Todd, when China was considered the golden goose. Everybody wanted in. Everybody wanted a piece of this. This was the new emerging market and such. Are we now paying a price for that now that the Chinese Communist Party has kind of changed its tune? You know, that's the great question. It seems about 25 years ago when China was joining the World Trade Organization, they were hosting the Summer Olympics in 2008. They seemed to be playing nicely in the sandbox with everybody. It seemed like this held the promise of a whole new age of trade with uh, the world's second largest economy. And over the last 20 years, Canada and most other Western countries you know, we really took advantage of that and we went heavy with trade with China, especially importing. But now, and for reasons we can get into, the situation is changing. The geopolitics has shifted. And now there is a question as to, are we finding ourselves too reliant on an unpredictable uh, trade partner? 
Have we already woven ourselves too much into this quilt, Todd? I mean, is uh, 25 years, as you said, of, um, I wouldn't say dependence on, but certainly it's changed the economy here, changed the world. It certainly has. And, you know, listeners just need to look around the room that they're in or the car they're driving. Almost everything <laughs> their eye falls on is going mm. to be imported from China or has some component part imported from China. And this does put us in a precarious situation, particularly as, you know, the, the tensions between China and the United States, uh, the China, or, uh, China and Canada, as those relationships become strained. If we find ourselves having to, you know, slap some, uh, some political sanctions on China, um, there is a lot at risk. And this is where, you know, my article in the Globe and Mail talks about the price of being principled. Are we prepared at some point, perhaps, to impose those sanctions on China uh, because of a different set of values held by China as compared to us? Or are we going to find ourselves on the sort of the, the bad end of the stick if China, as we saw last week, you know, imposing some uh, restrictions on Chinese tour groups visiting Canada, leaving Canada off the list of approved destinations? It really was kind of a slap in the face to Canada, a needless one, but it is going to be it is going to have an economic impact. Uh, another slap in the face, many would say. Um, many would always, uh, also say, why aren't we doing the right thing? You know, many have asked the question, too, about even something as simple, well, not simple, but a public inquiry. Like, why just not get this done? Is it that there are too many politicians that have woven themselves into this narrative? That if you expose that, you'll expose them? Well, there is that. I mean, getting into the politics, this is where, you know, Netflix, I'm sure, could make a whole mm. miniseries about the uh, complexities of it, and it would be compelling watching. But economically, there are, you know, it's, it's not quite as straightforward as saying we're going to cut off trade with China because we are so tightly integrated with their economy already, again, especially on the import side. Uh, so we're going to find out just how principled we are. Are we going to put our principles as a country ahead of the economy? Uh, that's tough to do. It's it's maybe easy to say in principle, but when push really comes to shove, are we going to allow major sections of our economy, our manufacturing, our tourism, our, our, our energy and commodities industries, are we going to let them maybe face some of the wrath uh, because of the principles we hold. So this is why I think the next uh, few years are going to be really interesting uh, and maybe a little perilous for Canada, for our politicians, and maybe for our economy. And this just isn't about cheap stuff. It's about uh, taking over the interest of business and such. It's embedding them into society. Yeah, that's right. It's more than just, as you say, it's more than just cheap toys and, and you know, inexpensive clothing. Um, it really does cut to the core of Canada as a global economic player. And, you know, there's been talk about, uh, you know, in the United States, their, uh, their bill to... Uh, uh, increase manufacturing of, of microprocessors, of, of computer chips in mm. America. Uh, this whole idea of friendshoring, in other words, shifting away as much as we can uh, from trading with potential adversaries and making sure our trade connections, uh, our global connections are with those countries we feel 
100% certain that are going to remain allies with us. But even if we do that, you know, it's still not quite as straightforward because the global economy is so, so it's such a complex uh, knitting of, of where component parts and, and uh, inputs come from and where they go. So even to say, well, we're only going to trade with perhaps Denmark for use them as an example. Well, whatever we import from Denmark, um, there might be a component part in that good that comes from right. China. So it, it's going to be really difficult to unravel this, maybe impossible to unravel it. But again, our principles as uh, a Western liberal democracy are going to be tested. Uh, that being said, the tone has changed, Todd. Are they feeling the pinch? I mean, we certainly know that China's economy is hurting right now. That's their post-COVID, uh, I guess, challenges and such. But as the world per- pulls back from the world's biggest factory, uh, are they going to take note of this? They might. Uh, you know, Canada, we are, uh, we're, we're not an insignificant player, but we're pretty small uh, yeah. for China as a trade partner. Uh, a lot more depends on what the United States and maybe what the European Union will do to hit back. But Xi Jinping, the, the, the leader of China, he's, he's in an interesting situation. His economy is faltering. They're not coming out of COVID as strongly as they thought they were going to be. Um, their housing market and their real estate market is looking very, very shaky. Uh, he's got a lot at stake personally. And if, in fact, China's economy really starts to falter, he's going to need a win to sort of bolster support um, within China and within the Communist Party in China. And that bolstering support might be, you know, hitting back hard on countries like Canada. This could play out a, a lot of different ways, the, the geopolitics. Um, but China will feel some of the pinch especially if the U.S. and the European Union, the larger economies, uh, also start hitting back. But that might put China, sort of like Russia has been with Ukraine, it might put them in a, in a tighter corner, and then you never know what they're going to do. Only got a couple of seconds left here, Todd. Just I can't let you go with your energy connections to the thoughts of the environment minister heading over to China to talk climate change. Is, is this an exercise in futility? I mean, I, I guess it's always great if we're talking, but... Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know what will come of it. I guess politically it is necessary because the politics of these things, the optics are that you must remain talking, that you must continue those diplomatic conversations. What will come of it is really difficult to say. Um, I can't get into the mind of, of, of Chinese leaders at the moment, what they might be thinking around the environment. Uh, I know that they could say with legitimacy, hey, look, we are the world's largest producer of, of green technology, solar panels, wind turbines, and we're doing our part by being the manufacturer of that. And I think there is some, some case to be made. But I still think that countries like Canada are also going to want to see China move further and move more quickly on reducing carbon emissions. So it is going to be a fascinating political conversation for them. Todd Hirsch, author, speaker, director of the Energy Transition Center, former chief economist at ATB Financial, and the latest in the Globe and Mail is letting go of China's money, the price Canada must pay for its principles. Todd, thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.